As we come to the end of the letters to the churches today as part of our Revelation study and our series that we're continuing in, um, that remains our goal with that as well, that we want to hear about uh, this church, this last of the seven, and see what was wrong in, in their life collectively so that we can avoid the same thing in, in our lives collectively as, as a body here today. We want to learn from their failure, from their mistakes, so that we don't repeat it. And so as we come to the last of these letters, we're, we're focusing in on the church of Laodicea. Laodicea. And it's definitely fitting uh, to summarize this church by calling them lukewarm. Lukewarm Laodicea. Uh, that's exactly what uh, they received as a description and, and a diagnosis from the Lord Jesus Himself. And this letter to this church, there was not one good thing said about them. There was nothing at all that Christ could praise this church about. I mean, that's terrible, right? I mean, just think about that. Uh, there's, there were lots of problems with the churches that we have discussed and studied together up to this point. With the exception of two uh, every church has had something that the Lord Jesus needed to point out. Uh, that there, was, there were things wrong, things missing, things out of sync that He needed to point out. All except for two. But all of those other churches also had some things going right, some things going well. Things that Jesus could and did praise them for. You know, I, I've talked uh, throughout this, this focus on these letters uh, of how many times there was a grace and truth sandwich, I called it, where the Lord Jesus, as He writes to these churches and He speaks to them, He doesn't always just jump right in with, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and fix this, fix this. He pointed out, this is good, and I'm glad to see this in you, and, and keep on doing this. This is great. Good job. I praise you for this. But... There's this over here that's wrong. We've got to talk about that. He did that many times. Again, all except for two. That was his pattern. It was good. Here's what's not so good. But then he ended with something good again, right? This church, Laodicea, the last of the seven addressed, there was nothing at all that Jesus could point out or point to that was going well or that was going right or that he could praise them for. He just jumped right in to what was wrong and negative and harmful and sinful, and that's the way he stayed throughout the entire address. So, with that in mind, as grim as it may be, let's jump in and see what Jesus had to say to this church, lukewarm Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is our passage uh, where we're going to uh, read along with what the Laodiceans actually read and received from the Lord. Revelation three fourteen through 22 starting in verse 14. The Lord Jesus dictating again as He has each time. And He says this, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. And right here in just this introduction uh, and these credentials that Jesus mentions, there's so much here I would do you a disservice if I rushed past that and just went on to the rest of the body of the letter. So uh, just for 
a little bit of time here, I want to focus in on each of these specific statements that Jesus made about himself by way of introduction, by way of showing his credentials, as it were. The Amen, he says, thus says the Amen. The Apostle Paul um, says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ or through Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our Amen, which means yes, ascends to God for His glory. Uh, amen is something that we're used to closing our prayers with, right? Whether it's, it's a personal prayer or a corporate prayer, we say, Amen. And like so many things, I think we say that, we use that word without really giving it a thought as to why we say that or what we're, we're meaning by saying that word, Amen. And so when we say Amen, and, and what Amen means just simply is, yes, let it be so. Or it's, it's an absolute assurance or a conviction that things are going to be a certain way. Uh, it's a fulfillment, you could say. So, in terms of Jesus being the amen, and what Paul said, as I just read in First, Second Corinthians 1.20, that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ, that He is the living amen to all of God's promises, I mean, that's just a beautiful, powerful thing. That means that all that God the Father, God Almighty, has promised throughout all the ages has their fulfillment or their resounding yes in Jesus. And so He is the complete fulfillment of all that God says He's going to do. All that He's going to bring about. And as we pray through Jesus to God the Father, He allows us to, to be in agreement with all that God the Father is doing. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, amen, we're saying, let it be so, Father, according to Your will, through Your Son, Jesus. What a beautiful picture that is. And so Jesus is saying, that's what I am. I am the eternal amen. I'm the let it be as to all that God wills and all that He plans. And then He says that He's the faithful and true witness. And John 1 and Hebrews 1, uh, among other passages, tell us that Jesus is the eternal Word of the Father. That He, as the Word, He always perfectly, completely reveals all that the Father is and all that the Father plans and purposes and all of His will. All the glory of God, Hebrews 1 tells us, is seen in Jesus Colossians 1 tells us that. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus, the eternal Word, always just perfectly reveals to us all that the, the invisible and, and unfathomable God is. Perfect revelation. And then he, last but certainly not least, refers to himself as the originator of God's creation. And in Colossians 1 uh, tells us that Jesus is indeed supreme over all creation. Some translations say the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus uh, was, was uh, made or created, that there was ever a time when the Son of God did not exist along with the Father. That's not what that means. That word firstborn, that's rank. That's, that's uh, an order. And that means that He is supreme over all creation. That He's the creator and sustainer of every 
part of it. And isn't that good to know that your Savior, who did come as a baby, born in Bethlehem, existed for all of eternity before Bethlehem, and that He has always been the sustainer of everything He created, and that He always will be. Isn't that good news for you this morning? That no matter what might be wrong in your life or around your life, there is one who reigns and rules and orders and orchestrates and sustains it all. He's worthy of praise because of that. So, again, uh, I had to focus in on, on this introduction because there's just too much majesty and richness there to just rush past. And he's, he's saying these things because he wants the church at Laodicea to take him seriously. To remember who and what it is that's writing to them. That's addressing these issues, these problems. He doesn't want them to just to kind of dismiss it because he needs to be listened to. He's worthy of their attention. And then he goes on. Verse 15. I know your works, he said. Uh, Ian, when he spoke while I was on vacation, touched on that statement and that it refers to Jesus' omniscience, that he, as God, is all-knowing. There's nothing hidden from his knowledge, nothing hidden from his awareness, nothing hidden from his sight, that we can all fool everyone, possibly. We could all do that, that there is, there is the potential that we could fool every single person in and around our lives. And some people do that. You, you know Sometimes people like that, unfortunately. But Jesus will never be able to be fooled. That even when we fool ourselves, even when we deceive ourselves, He knows the truth about every aspect of our life. Verse 15 says that. I know your works. And then He he says what those works are. Here's the, the diagnosis of this very, very sick church. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But he's saying you're neither one of those things. You're not cold. You're not hot. And we understand the emphasis on one or the other. For example, I want to know, uh, by show of hands, who prefers and only wants, no matter what time of year it is, it could be 90 degrees, but you only want hot coffee. Who, who says that's me? I only drink hot coffee. Okay, all right? Put your hands down, all right? Show of hands. Who prefers iced coffee? Even in the dead of winter, you want iced coffee. Who is that? Uh-oh, hot coffee's got him beat. Now, nationally, statistically, it's about even. It's just about 50-50. That, uh, like, if you take uh, uh, Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and McDonald's and all those places, they do surveys, right? They want to know what their customers really like and what they're really wanting. And so they do these surveys, and it comes back consistently that it's right about even between preferring hot and preferring cold. Now, uh, show of hands, who does not like coffee at all? Who doesn't drink that? You're dead to me. Just... That's it. You're, you're just not human, but okay. All right, uh, let me go with tea. Same thing, all right? Who prefers hot tea? Hot tea only. Okay, over here, a couple. Well, we knew Brad would be weird like that, but um, cu- yeah, a couple, couple only like hot tea. All right, I- iced tea only, cold tea only. 
All right. Man, you guys have some issues in your, your marriage there, Brad and Lisa. Um, yeah, so, so you see what I mean? Like, we prefer one or the other. Um, what, what we can agree on is that lukewarm, no matter what it is, coffee, tea, soda, lukewarm anything is disgusting. It's nasty. I mean, no one's going to come to Starbucks and say, hi, I'd like a lukewarm coffee, please. Venti. They'd look at you like you were insane, which you would be. Um, you don't do that. No, lukewarm of anything, no matter what your preference is on the side, you're not going to want that. It's gross. It's useless. Hot water, it comforts us. It can even cleanse us. Medically speaking, hot water, it cleanses, it washes, it comforts us, it, it kind of fills us up, you know, especially when it's cold. Cold water, uh, it refreshes us, or cold liquid, it refreshes us, it replenishes us, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's the kind of, that's the kind of direction he's headed. Uh, this is not like you may have heard in other teaching on this passage, or maybe a book you've read, commentary, whatever, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's actually prevalent that people say, Jesus here is saying, I would just rather you be stone cold dead spiritually. I'd rather you just be completely lost and wicked if you're not going to be searing hot for me, if you're not going to be firing on all cylinders, just searing hot on fire for me. If you're not going to be to that extreme, then I would just rather you be completely lost and dead spiritually. You probably have heard that. Because that's a very popular interpretation of what he's saying. But I'm here to tell you that is not accurate. That's not right. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He is saying, uh, I, would, I would rather you be one or the other spiritually. I'd rather you be church of Laodicea. I'd rather you be cold and refreshing and cooling and replenishing and rejuvenating to the community and the world around you. Or I'd rather you be you know, just hot and, and cleansing and comforting. But you're neither one of those. You're not refreshing. You're not comforting. You're not replenishing and you're not cleansing. You're neither one. You're neither cold or hot. Rather, verse 16 says this, so because you are lukewarm, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're, you're gross, you're useless, you have no benefit to me or anybody else whatsoever. Because you are lukewarm, look at what he says, and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's, that's literally what he was saying. Some translations, maybe your copy of God's Word says, I will spit you out or spew you out of my mouth. Literally, he was saying, you make me sick. You, church, of Laodicea, he's talking to a local church. Imagine that, church. Imagine if you got, if we got this letter from, from our head and our Savior, our, our ultimate senior pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine hearing that. You, Faith Baptist Church of Prosperity, West Virginia, you're not hot spiritually, you're not cold spiritually, refreshing replenishing. You're of no value. In fact, you make me sick and I'm going to just vomit you out. Go and be blessed and have a great week. Right? I mean, what a statement. But that's what he said. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus here 
was using some wordplay that the Laodiceans would have immediately understood and grabbed onto. And this is another reason that we can know he wasn't saying, um, I, I just want you to be totally dead spiritually and lost. I would prefer that if you're not going to be just totally on fire for me. We, we know that's not what he's saying by context. Context is key in any study of Scripture and in any interpretation. And here's what Jesus was saying. Here's the wordplay he was using. Laodicea got their water from two neighboring cities. Colossae, which was a neighboring city only about 10 miles away, and Hierapolis, a little bit farther, maybe 15, 20 miles. And Colossae provided cold, refreshing mountain water to them. That's where they got their cold water or were supposed to get their cold water from Colossae, the mountain water. And Hierapolis had hot water. They actually had hot springs. Anybody ever been in hot springs? Any, any at all? Like you can go and get into these pools of water, and they're, they're hot springs, and they, it, it's therapeutic and you know, kind of healing. It's, it's really, really a great thing if you're able to do that. It, it's really, uh, even in the dead of winter, you can go into these hot springs, and it's you know, like 80 degrees in there, and you're, you're great. So they had these hot springs of water that were believed to have therapeutic and healing benefits. And both cities, Colossae, and Hierapolis, they, they channeled and carried their water to Laodicea by stone aqueduct, like you see on the picture there. That's how Laodicea got their water. And as the water started out from Colossae, it was crisp and cold and refreshing. And when it started out from Hierapolis, it was piping hot. So maybe try to remember you know, Colossae, C for cold water, Hierapolis, H for hot water. And so when that, when that started out, it was good. It was what you would want, cold or hot. But here's the problem. By the time it arrived to Laodicea by way of those stone aqueducts, it wasn't hot or cold anymore. Rather, it was sickeningly lukewarm. And it was full of sediment and particles from the stone aqueducts that it was traveling through. And, you know, animals getting into it and that kind of stuff. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it could, and sometimes did, as history notes, it, it actually made people sick sometimes. And so, you see the connection there? You see the picture? Jesus is taking this real-life experience and using it to make a point. Just like he did throughout all of his ministry. Think back to to his teaching, his public teaching ministry. He did that all the time. He took a real-life, real-time reality, and he used it to illustrate a point he wanted to make about someone's life. And that's what he's doing here. He's using this, this reality that Laodicea lived with to make the point that this church is ineffective, it's useless, and it actually makes him sick. Why was that? That's the next question, right? Why? I mean, why did Jesus have such a strong reaction to this church? Well, verse 17 gives us some pretty obvious clues. Verse 17, 
Jesus just got done saying, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Why, Jesus? Why are you going to do that? Why do you feel this way about this church? Verse 17, for you say, here's why, for you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were, in other words, totally and utterly deceived. Totally deceived. They thought they were one way, but in reality, they were completely another. And Jesus, the all-knowing one, knew all about it. He said, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I need nothing. And that, my friends, is absolutely textbook materialism. The definition of materialism I am rich, I have become wealthy, and need nothing. But materialism isn't just having lots of money and things. It's actually thinking that having lots of money and lots of things gives you all you need, and it's, it's loving and depending on that, money, lots of things, instead of loving God and depending on Him. And materialism is not something that just plagues the rich. Materialism actually is something that people of all kinds of economic status can and do struggle with. In fact, many times it's the really poor, not all the time, but many times, the really poor that can struggle the most with materialism because they don't have a lot of money and a lot of things, and they think wrongly that that's what they need to fulfill themselves or satisfy, so they chase after those things and are consumed by those things. This extends to middle class too, by the way, because we have just enough to meet our needs, but not enough to meet all of our wants. So materialism plagues us all, or it certainly has the potential to. And that's what we see on display here. I, I view myself as, as rich, and I've become more prosperous, and now I have convinced myself I don't need anything, including God. And here's why this was such a problem for this church. Laodicea, the city that this church was in, was actually an extremely wealthy city uh, because they produced a very unique very unique black wool that nobody else did. There was just this, this specific wool uh, that was unique to them that everybody else wanted and loved, and so it was in really high demand, and it was exported all over the place, and it, it gave them a lot of gold for this wool that they produced and exported. Everybody wanted it. And in addition to that, there was this unique eye salve or ointment. It was a healing thing. This was a, it was a big medical city, too, with a great big medical institution, and they had this unique ISAV that they also exported all over the empire, and uh, it, it helped cure all sorts of eye ailment. And so both of these things, these products that Laodicea was known for and that they produced, it was always in high demand, and it always resulted in virtually a limitless supply of gold and other treasures. So they were extremely wealthy, so much so that apparently in AD 60, their city was totally destroyed by an earthquake. They were on a fault line. Um, and, 
And rather than getting the government aid to rebuild their city, which Rome offered them, they said, no, we don't need it. We have plenty of resources on our own. So, I mean, they actually rejected the government aid and said, we're good, Rome. We're good. We got this. And they rebuilt all of their city and did it even better because they had so much extra money. That's Laodicea. And apparently the church, and this isn't too much of a stretch to see how this could fit together, apparently the local church, the Laodicean church, benefited from the the city's prosperity too. So much so that they forgot that no matter how physically rich we may get, spiritually, we will always be in need of what only our Savior can provide. Always will be in need of what only Jesus can provide. In other words, we're always going to be, Christian, spiritual beggars. Always. We have nothing in ourselves or by ourselves to give us and provide what we really need. It's always going to come from Jesus alone. And apparently this church forgot it because they benefited from the wealth of their city too. I mean, they probably had a lot of wealthy, influential people in their church. Giving was way up. They didn't need anything from outside help. They had whatever they wanted, whatever program they wanted to start, man, they were able to do it. Whatever addition they wanted to add on to their ministry or let's just say uh, maybe their building, you know, their, their environment, their atmosphere in which they met, they could do it. They could hire on whoever they wanted. I mean, let's just think of it in modern terms. They would have been at the number one of all the church growth lists, right? Uh, all the, the most effective, most uh, dynamic, thriving, growing churches, they would have been the top. I mean, Joel Osteen would have been really thrilled with this church. Okay? But Jesus looked at them and said, I don't look at you and say, wow, how rich. Wow, how prosperous. Look at all your provision. No, he says, I look at you, and I look at you, and I see wretched. I see poor. I see blind, needy, and naked. Because they forgot that no matter how physically rich you might get, spiritually, you're always going to be in need of what can only be provided by the Savior. And in response to that, after he diagnosed them, here's the prescription that he provides. Verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, the fire of holiness, the fire of purity, of righteousness, so that you may be rich. In other words, so that you will be really rich. So that you'll be rich in the kind of richness that never fades or goes away or can be corrupted. That can only come from me. The rich richness that I alone provide. He also said, I advise you to buy from me white clothes. Again, purity, holiness, righteousness. And what a contrast that is to the black wool that they depended on so much. You see, you see the, the ongoing wordplay there? They had lots of gold, you know, man-made, human, worldly gold and riches, but he said, I advise you to buy from me the kind of gold that I alone can provide, gold that lasts, 
incorruptible gold. And in contrast to that black wool that they depended on so much for their economic stability, he said, I advise you to buy white clothes. And he's, I, I even see Jesus doing something deliberate there to emphasize the sinfulness present within this church. Black, you know, representing sin and, and wickedness. The white clothes representing righteousness and holiness. White clothes so that you may be dressed, really dressed, really equipped, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. Think back to Adam and Eve at the garden when they took the fruit and the eyes were opened and they realized, the text says in Genesis, they realized they were naked. That doesn't mean they realized all of a sudden they physically didn't have clothes on. They were already really, really smart. They understood that. They realized that they were absent or naked from the glory of God, the perfection of God that they had enjoyed before they ate the forbidden fruit. That's the same idea here. Jesus is saying, what I need you to realize is no matter what you clothe yourself with physically, no matter what you provide for yourself, you are truly absent of my glory. You're absent of the things I look for. Righteousness and glory and justice and true goodness. You're absent. You're naked of that. And it's shameful. And he says, so, so come to me and, and get from me what I alone can provide you the, the dressing and the clothing that will cover your shameful nakedness. And then lastly, and again there's this connection to all that they depend on, all they're trusting in, their economic stability and the sources of that. Look at what he says last. And ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Remember, I just a couple minutes ago said that another big part of their economic success was this eye salve, this ointment that they produced and sent all over the empire and yielded great, great money and great economic return from. And Jesus is saying, stop depending on that for your stability and for your well-being. I advise you to get the ointment that I will provide you. Spread it on your eyes, the eyes of your heart. We just sang about that earlier this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. And that should be our desire. But what we need to remember, church, is to get a real vision of our God. He has to give it to us. He has to be the one to open our eyes to all that He is. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. It's something only God by His Spirit can do. And He will do it if we will come to Him and yield to Him and allow Him to do it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Stop looking to yourself. Stop looking to all that you manufacture and produce and come to me and look to me and receive from me all that I alone can provide you. And then verse 19, he says this, as many as I love, as many as I love, that's key, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous, be active, be proactive, be assertive, and repent. Metanoia. Change your, your complete mind around. Turn your heart around. Stop going the way you're going and come back the way you're supposed to be going, which you started out going on. That's what he means by repent. That's what repentance always means and always expresses. 
There are lots of opinions uh, about the true state of the Laodicean church. Lots of opinions. Maybe you've read them, maybe you've heard them. Is it a completely false church, full of only unsaved people, false believers? All the opinions really come down to really two possibilities. That's the first one. Not a real church, not authentic at all, totally apostate, full of false believers, never really was a genuine church. That's one of the prevailing thoughts and opinions. The other uh, that is questioned, and it comes down to this question, is, or was it an authentic church, a real, genuine church that started off in a good, healthy place, but gradually declined to the point they were at now. Gradual decline similar to the water that they received. Gradual change in temperature. Started off hot from Hierapolis, started off cold from Colossae, but gradually changed to lukewarm. Is that really what was going on here? Well, to answer that, I want to give you just a couple specific clues from Scripture itself. We should always try to, as much as we can, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? Colossians 2.1, the Apostle Paul writing, and he says this to the Colossian church, which gave cold water to Laodicea. He said this, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. Then in Colossians 4, 15 through 16, he says this, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. That means, while we don't have it in our copies of Scripture, our canon, there was apparently an epistle that Paul wrote to Laodicea, just like he did all the other churches he planted or had some sort of association with. So, I mean, it sure seems pretty obvious that Paul considered this to be a genuine church full of genuine believers. He addressed them as brothers and sisters. He said, I, I, I agonize for them just as I agonize for you and all the other churches. So, because of that, and then something else that I'll point out in just a minute, I really believe that this was just as much an authentic, genuine church as any of the others that Jesus wrote to, or as any of the others of the time. And even though they were at this point, I don't believe that means they were always or only at this point. Nor do I believe that this church was made up of only non-believers. Sure, obviously, there were unbelievers in the church itself, in their midst, unfortunately leading them farther and farther away from Christ, but I don't think that means that there were only unbelievers in this church. I think there, were probably, there was probably a remnant of true, genuine believers. Even though they probably weren't as strong or, or farther along in their faith as they should be, they were probably genuinely saved. God always, all through history, all through Scripture, provides Himself a remnant of the elect. And what we see in Laodicea is true, really, in any and every church. 
at the time of this writing in the first century and every century after it, up through today, it can be true of us. We can be just as guilty of this as anyone. And that's this. It's this, this truth. Becoming lukewarm is a slow and subtle fade. Becoming lukewarm, like Laodicea did, is a slow and subtle fade. It's just like the water that came to them from Colossae and Hierapolis. It starts off one way, but it gradually changes into another, and by the time it reaches, if there's nothing done about it, nothing done to intervene, then it's useless and ineffective. And that can happen to all of us. Becoming lukewarm is not a quick, immediate, overnight thing. You don't just wake up and you're suddenly lukewarm. And no one, no one says, Lord, I pray that you would make our church a lukewarm church. Nobody does that. It's slow and it's subtle. It's compromise here and compromise there. It's not dealing with this issue and not dealing with that issue and just sweeping it under the rug. Not fixing this broken relationship over here. Not addressing the sin in that believer's life over here. And then it just it builds up and it builds up and then you do finally come to the point of being utterly lukewarm and useless. And I think that's what happened here at the church of Laodicea. Now, I said I had one more reason for believing and, and seeing this as an authentic church. And that's connected to back to what Jesus said in verse 19. Verse 19, he said, As many as I love, I rebuke, and, and I discipline, and so be zealous and repent. Well, when, when I hear that, and with Jesus saying that, I think of what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. He said this, As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as His own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, as He does all of His children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really His children at all. Pretty clear, right? If, if someone says, well, I've never underwent discipline from the Lord, I, I don't know what you're talking about when you say, man, I'm really, really feeling the discipline of God. If you've never experienced that or you never have anything to point to in your life where God did discipline you or others in your assembly, then that's a clue, a very dangerous, scary, scary clue that you don't really belong to God. Because God disciplines and corrects and removes things from the life of people that are really His, His children that He loves. And so even in His harsh description here, even in His harsh rebuke of this church, I see, and I hope you see too, Jesus lovingly, mercifully calling them to turn back to Himself. Calling them to come back. And I see Him giving them the chance to do precisely that. Don't, don't you see that? I hope you do. I hope you see in the midst of this harsh, harsh language and rebuke, you see Him lovingly and mercifully calling them back to Himself. Saying, come back to Me. I'm giving you the chance. Do that. And what that shows us is another fact. Something else to keep in mind. Repentance and restoration is always the goal of discipline by God in an individual Christian's life 
or in the church body. You know, we've, we've had times here where we've had to uh, bring members into official church discipline, where we followed a scriptural mandate and pattern, Matthew 18 and others. And it reached the point, because there was not a repentant spirit at all, as they were confronted about sin, it reached a point where we had to biblically put that individual or individuals before the church and say, until such a time as they acknowledge and own their sin and their rebellion and repent of that, until such a time, we have to dismiss them. And it hurts, and it's messy, but it's necessary. And in those times, here's what the goal always is, always. Restoration. Reconciliation. Repentance. Right relationship. It's never judgment just to judge. It's never just to single out or make someone feel awful or to pour out wrath on them. That's never the biblical goal of of any type of church discipline or Christian discipline. It's always repentance. It's always restoration. And I see that happening here with Jesus and this wayward church. I hope you see that as well. Verse 20, he says, see, look, I in an effort to really show them how serious he is. He says, look, look, I'm, I stand at the door and knock. I'm standing at the door of your, your body, as it were, your church. And I'm knocking. I mean, imagine that. A church of Jesus excluding Jesus. It happens more than you think. And it happens easier than we might think. And that's what's happened here. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. This was an intimate time of close fellowship, and, and it was an honor for the host in the first century. If anybody had someone into their home, it was the honor of the person hosting. And Jesus is saying, I want to come in. I want to know you intimately. I want you to know me intimately. Do that, please. I, I stand at the door and knock, but I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not going to force it. It's up to you. I'm here. I'm available. Then verse 21 He says, to the one who conquers, and that's specifically being lukewarm, to the one who conquers this lukewarm way of living, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And like all the other letters that Jesus concluded His statements in that way, this means us. Let anyone who hears what the Spirit says to the churches, let him hear. That means us. And so what does that all, what does all this mean for us as we've looked at this Laodicean church, this lukewarm church? What does it mean for us? Well, here's here's where it gets really practical as we wrap up, not just this message, but this part of the study of Revelation, these letters. I want to provide you symptoms of a lukewarm Christian that you need to know, you need to keep in mind, you need to be guarded against. Symptoms of a lukewarm Christian. Here's what they are, and I'm going I'm to move through these fairly quickly, okay, so hang with me. Symptoms of a lukewarm Christian. This is the individual Christian I'm talking about. If we're a lukewarm Christian, it means we forget our real condition and our constant need of Jesus. We forget our real condition and our constant need of Jesus. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. That's our real condition. 
outside of Christ for everyone. But, hallelujah, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's another symptom. We care more about temporary treasure than we do about treasure in heaven. We certainly saw that on display with Laodicea. Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then last but not least, as far as the individual Christian goes, we're lukewarm when we treat Jesus like an afterthought instead of the center of our life. We're lukewarm when we treat Jesus like an afterthought instead of the center of our life. So those are symptoms of the individual lukewarm Christian. And lastly, I want to provide you the symptoms of a lukewarm church collectively as it relates to our whole body together. A church is lukewarm when it lacks passion and joy in worshiping and serving Jesus. So we come and we gather and we worship and we go through the motions and we do what needs to be done, but there's no passion in it. There's no joy. We're just kind of like zombies drudging along through it without passion, without joy in our worship or our service for the Lord. That is a clear sign of a lukewarm church. And before we start pointing fingers at other churches we know like that, Let's make sure a big finger is pointing back to us because, church, we are just as guilty of this. Just as guilty. Secondly, a church is lukewarm when it's more concerned about personal preferences than unity in the body. When we hold up and cling to personal preference more than we pursue and embrace unity in the body. And then last but not least, a church is lukewarm when it hungers and thirsts for entertainment and comfort instead of truth and holiness. Church is lukewarm when it hungers and thirsts for entertainment and comfort instead of truth and holiness. So, big question with all that is, once we recognize in that in our lives or in our life corporately, but in the body, once we recognize this, and we repent of being lukewarm, how do we guard against it going forward continually? How do we guard against it? Psalm 51, 12. David there said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I, I've, I've been missing, I've, I'm lacking joy because I, I was away from you, God. I was looking at other things and, other than you, and, and they didn't satisfy. I, I've lost my joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, David said, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Once we identify lukewarmness in our life or in the life of our body at the, at the church, we need to be continually praying this, seeking this. Restore the joy of my salvation, O God. And then Psalm 139 Verses 23 through 24, David said, Search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. We could insert any lukewarm way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting life. Or lead me in the way of everlasting. So it's, it's, a, it's an attitude of the heart that's continually 
open before God, asking Him to do what only He can do, which is to get down deep and to search every nook and cranny of our heart and our mind and say, please reveal to me anywhere, anywhere I'm lukewarm and then rid me of it. Get it out of my life. This is a continual need and a continual habit and a practice. And I hope, Faith Baptist, that you will join me in praying this way just continually as we go forward. It's what we need. It's how we guard against being lukewarm. Let's do that now. Let's just pray, and then we'll close out our service. Father, thank you for your word. It's harsh sometimes. It's not always pretty. It's not always comfortable, but it is always, always relevant. It's always what we need. And so I pray that we would heed your word, specifically as it relates to the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church. Help us to see the ways that we can so easily be the same, that we too can be lukewarm, that it happens subtly, and it happens slowly, and it happens easily. May we be on guard against it. May we remember that only in you will we find everything we need. May we remember our true condition apart from your Son. And Father, I pray that we would constantly be people that ask your Spirit to reveal to us, individually and as a body, any way whatsoever that we are going toward a lukewarm state of being, and that we would immediately repent of it and have the joy of salvation restored to us and passion in serving you, that we would pursue the eternal things, not the temporal, that we would pursue unity above our own agendas and preferences, and that we would always hunger and thirst for righteousness and for truth, not entertainment, not comfort. Help us in all of this, I pray. May we be a church body that is not necessarily going to be perfect here on earth, but may we absolutely be a body, a local body, that is not in any way lukewarm. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.